0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush
1: Care.
0: Afternoon, Jim. Good to see you again.
1: Hi, Chris. How's it
0: going? All well. Thank you very much. When we were chatting earlier on today about the contents of today's podcasts, because contrary to what it might sound like to our listeners, we do try to plan these things and give it some kind of structure, some kind of order. We said to each other, well, let's try and not mention COVID today, because we've talked a lot about coronavirus lately. and We know how cheesed off we are with the whole blooming thing and we know how our listeners are getting browned off by it. But I think it's probably going to be impossible to get away with not talking about it, particularly with the Irish government considering the recommendations of Neffert and just the way the numbers in particular are going in the UK. And so I think towards the end of the podcast, we need to, to come back to that. But I know there's been a lot of economic and financial news developments this week. We've had some important stuff going on in the World Central Bank's the Federal Reserve in the United States, the ECB in Europe, and of course the Bank of England, for the first time, I suspect in the in the living memory of some of our listeners, has put interest rates up. Uh, it's been a long time um, since since it's happened. Uh, the it's, and that's to do with another subject, of course, that we we have sometimes felt that we've done to death, but we have to talk about because it is so so pertinent and. Um, so alive. And that, that of course, is the inflation story. And of course, the two things are linked. And this is one of the things I think that this podcast does do a service, if you like, is pointing out the ways in which, um, in, in a non-intuitive way, sometimes everything is linked to everything else today. And the way in which COVID and inflation is linked is an important part of our daily lives. So, Jim, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to hand over to you and ask you to take us through In the first instance, what the central banks have all been up to and any other economic developments that you think um, are worth drawing our attention to?
1: Uh, Yeah, Chris, the the whole central bank situation definitely came to a bit of a head this week because we've been speculating for some time about what central banks might or might not do in the face of an obvious slowing in economic activity, uh, but also an obvious ongoing increase in consumer price inflation. And we've said that, and it's certainly uh, true, that central bankers are really in a dilemma at the moment because uh, when you're faced with growth that's under threat from uh, the new variant and you also have ongoing upper pressure on prices, that's a bit of a nightmare for central bankers. Yesterday, the Bank of England bit the bullet, increased interest rates by 15 basis points, And um, personally, I believe, okay, it's a pretty modest increase, but symbolically it's important. Uh, I actually think it's a mistake because given everything that's happening in the UK at the moment with COVID and the likely economic impact of that, and also there are signs of slower activity in the UK economy like most other places at the moment. So increasing interest rates struck me as being premature, uh, but that's the call that was made. I think there was an 8-1 vote on the Monetary Policy Committee in favour of that increase?
0: I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you too much, um, which I know I do all the time and I shouldn't. But what was incredible was that on the main BBC News last night, they had a discussion, an interview with Andrew Bailey, the uh, governor of the Bank of England, the newish governor of the Bank of England. And I know the interview was edited, so they probably cut out a lot of very sensible things that he said. But the segment that they put out, and this is all that they put out, was him discussing the price of natural gas in a pan-European context and the reasons why natural gas prices went up earlier this year, then they went down in the autumn, and now they're going up again in the context of uh, geopolitics and the Russian pipeline through Ukraine to West Germany, the Nord Stream pipeline. And uh, it was as if he was justifying his interest rate increase on the basis of geopolitics and Russian gas supplies to Western Europe. And you you, you couldn't make this stuff up. There couldn't be more of a non-reason for putting interest rates up, Jim, than supply issues of natural gas from Russia. Because if you think about it, there isn't an awful lot of connection between British interest rates and Russian gas supplies, both directly and indirectly. The only way in which, if you think that the inflation problem is being caused by Russian gas supplies and things like that, that you could bring British inflation down, is by causing an almighty recession in the UK. Now, of course, 15 basis points isn't going to do that, and I don't think that they intend to do that. So I agree with you. That's the point of my interruption. Yeah, that... I mean,
1: I, I think it was a stupid move. And, um, you know, if, if it was in response to natural gas prices rising because of what's happening on the Russian-Ukrainian border, uh, I would believe that that is actually bad for growth in the United Kingdom, ultimately. And um, increasing interest rates against that backdrop, as I say, to me, it's just is downright stupid. Um, in the United States, then on Wednesday night, after a two-day meeting, uh, the Federal Reserve left interest rates on hold, as expected, but it issued some pretty bearish comments about the outlook for interest rates. Uh, one of the first things, not surprisingly, that Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, did um, in the statement that followed the meeting was they dropped the characterization of inflation as transitory. Uh, so transit, transitory in a U.S. inflation context has been confined to the dustbin of history. They, In the statement, they spoke about supply problems and the reopening of the economy, you know, continued to contribute to elevated inflation. And they made the point that inflation has now exceeded 2% for some time. Uh, but they also came out and said that the risks to the economic outlook remain elevated because of the Omricon variant. Okay, so a lot of dual messages there, but the bottom line was that they did adopt a much more negative tone about the future of interest rates and monetary policy generally. Uh, They have halved, they're going to reduce the bond buying, the monthly bond buying program by $30 billion per month, and it's going to Purchases will end in February. So that's a clear indication that that monetary stimulus through quantitative easing is going to be steadily eradicated over the next few months. On the official interest rate front, the suggestion now is that rates will be increased three times in 2022, three times in 2023, and twice in 2024. That's the forward guidance that the Federal Reserve is now giving. So that definitely marked a, you know, I guess an escalation of the sort of hawkish view that the Federal Reserve has been adopting towards inflation over recent times. And of course, the one thing that does differentiate the states really from other places is that Biden over the last 12 months has injected massive fiscal stimulus into the US economy. So uh, definitely you can see where the Federal Reserve is coming from. But I think the Federal Reserve also sensibly um, did allude to those risks and is still playing a little bit of a waiting game. So I I think that's the correct approach. And then, of course, in Europe yesterday, the European Central Bank met um, a more relaxed approach, really, than the Federal Reserve. But still, they did up the ante a little bit in a bearish way. Uh, You know, they they spoke about the threats from inflation. They spoke about, and they're implementing a gradual easing in the bond buying program. Uh, But there is no suggestion whatsoever that official interest rates will rise during 2022. And I know from a central banking perspective, forecasting what might happen, interest rates over a 12-month period is a waste of time. But at this juncture, the European Central Bank is somewhat more relaxed than the Bank of England or indeed the US Federal Reserve. So Irish mortgage holders can sleep easily for the moment, but obviously this is a story that will evolve over the coming months and um, things can change very rapidly. Uh, But my overall sense is that the Omricon variant, the restrictions that are being increasingly put in place to deal with that, will dampen economic activity. Okay, they may exacerbate the supply side problems that are causing inflation to spike. But I think that the negative impact on economic activity will outweigh those supply side inflationary impulses. And the bottom line from my perspective would be that the European Central Bank will keep official interest rates on hold for the foreseeable future. What do you think?
0: I think it comes down to some pretty basic economics, actually. And for those of our listeners who are not economists, I'll try to explain it with as little jargon and as briefly as possible. Basic economic theory and practice teaches us that if the way in which you conduct monetary policy, the way in which you set interest rates, should be guided more by the demand side of the economy than the supply side of the economy. Obviously, the two interact And both are happening at the same time. And sometimes it's difficult to distinguish between the two. But the basic idea is that if you have supply side inflation, if you have bottlenecks in the economy, if you have something on that side of the equation driving a rise in inflation, monetary policy is not the tool to use to deal with it. And the Bank of England this week did one of two things. It either said that uh, this, in fact, has got an awful lot to do now with with the demand side of the economy, which interest rates can affect quite directly, um, which I think both of us completely disagree with, that it's bled into, that these supply side inflation pressures have bled into the demand side, um, or the demand side has done something on its own. I don't think there's much evidence of either, to be honest with you. Uh, So it's either getting it right. And we're getting it wrong in the way in which the problem, the actual disease, is being diagnosed. So, if you get, if you in as in the medical world, if you have the wrong diagnosis, you give the wrong medicine. That's what I think the Bank of England has done. And the issue is going to be whether the United States and or the ECB follow with that misdiagnosis. And we'll find out next year whose diagnosis is right. Uh, If the ECB follows the Bank of England and puts interest rates up, Jim, then. Your mortgage, you know, mortgages here in the UK will be going up. Certainly those on variable rates and tracker mortgages will be going up a bit. It's not huge. 15 basis points won't make a huge amount of difference, but it's a few quid every month out of people's pockets that are on those kinds of mortgages and anybody else that has a variable, a loan that's attached to a variable interest rate. Uh, If the ECB does it next year, it'll be because either it shares the Bank of England's diagnosis, that this is a demand side problem which needs fixing, uh, or it makes a policy mistake like I think the Bank of England did yesterday. I agree with you.
1: Right. Here in Ireland, um, we've had uh, quite a bit of news during the week from an official statistics perspective. Um, And there's three things I'd like to sort of hone in on a little bit to give a perspective on how Ireland is doing at the moment. Uh, The first piece is the CSO yesterday published its 2020 foreign direct investment annual. And it is historical. And, you know, in the IDA's annual report, or well, sorry, it's annual results back in January of this year, uh, we got the figures on jobs created and stuff by the IDA companies during 2020. Uh, But just to put a bit of context, the figures yesterday show That foreign direct investment into Ireland increased by a net 71 billion in 2020. Uh, That consisted of 57 billion in equity investment, 64 billion in reinvested earning inflows, and then there was um, a decrease in other capital investment of 50 billion. So the net result was an inflow of 71 billion. So that means that at the end of 2020, foreign direct investment in Ireland and wait for this, totaled 1.09 trillion euro up from 1.08 trillion euro a year earlier. Um, So that is just the sort of background to the 257,000 jobs that are currently supported in Ireland by um, IDA-supported companies. And of course, um, in a few weeks' time in January we'll get the job results from the IDA uh, for 2021. And that, as far as I can gather out there, is going to result or demonstrate at least another significant improvement in foreign direct investment. So uh, I I think a key point here is that um, we've seen this year um, initial agreement on the OECD Global Corporation Tax Agenda, um, which many would deem to be Relatively bad news for Ireland, but there was nothing surprising. We've seen for some time that this was coming down the tracks. We still don't know exactly what it's going to look like because we still have decisions to be made by US Congress and also at an EU level. Uh, But it, it, it has been coming down the track, so there's no surprises. And yet, despite that, we continue to see very strong external investment flows into Ireland. And that does suggest that multinationals are not terribly concerned about these tax changes and the impact they might have on their investments in Ireland. So Ireland continues to perform very strongly on the foreign direct investment front. Second piece of data, um, not not certainly not as positive, and that was the um, latest house price numbers uh, for October. So in the year to October, national average house prices up by 13.5%. Um, previous month the growth rate was 12.5 so it's accelerating. Dublin prices up by 12.3% with prices in parts of Dublin up by 15.5% and outside of Dublin the annual rate of increase is 14.6%. So what that suggests is that this demand supply imbalance in the housing market continues to have a very negative and disproportionate impact on house prices here. Um, and if you remember, just in in 2019, um, and indeed as COVID hit in 2020, Irish house price inflation had been decelerating rapidly, and the rationale for that deceleration at that stage was that this is because affordability has become a big issue. You know, the, the the elevated level to which prices had gone, coupled with the central bank's prudential mortgage lending limits. Meant that basically a lot of people could not afford the house prices that were on offer and prices were decelerating. Then we had COVID, and initially prices fell a little bit. But between July of 2020 and October of 21, national prices have now increased by 14.4%. Dublin has increased by 13% and 15.5% outside Dublin. So the housing imbalanced situation that we've spoken about uh, we speak about every month is ongoing and from the that ties back into the foreign direct investment piece I was talking about a minute ago uh, because obviously to remain attractive for foreign direct investment we do need to make sure uh, we solve this housing situation as quickly as possible.
0: Yeah one of the nuances in that is that we take this problem uh, of housing, house prices, house availability, housing affordability, and come up with an awful lot of soundbites, an awful lot of headlines that reveal, frankly, shallow thinking. And I've spoken about this many, many times, about how it is very, very complicated with lots of drivers. Some drivers are purely domestic in terms of housing policy, uh, planning, uh, urban design. uh, The fact that Dublin is flat rather than high Um, rather than steep. All these things are domestic and there are lots of global factors, not least interest rates. But one of the factors behind Ireland's house prices, um, which you may or may not want to do something about, is how attractive it is for people to go and live. Uh, A lot of those jobs in those multinational sector that you spoke about are foreigners and they've all got to be housed somewhere. And um, particularly the executives of those companies um I've been to uh, social functions at Google, for example, where it's striking just how many non-nationals are employed there. Um, and there's lots of other examples of that. And I'm sure you, you have the actual data. So one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why Ireland has this housing problem is that it is a problem of economic success. It's the particular success of the international sector and the way in which the economy then becomes attractive in two ways. One, those jobs in that sector itself um, produces immigration. And then there's the the wider success of the economy on the multiplier effects from FDI and all of that foreign money in the country. All of those jobs create jobs. Um, Ireland, frankly, becomes a nicer place to live as well as a more economically attractive place to live. That attracts people. And people have to live somewhere. And so one of the reasons why you have this problem is that it is a problem of economic success. That's not unlike what's going on in San Francisco, for example. Um, there are strong parallels, international parallels there. It's the reason why prices um, of, of housing in, in London and the southeast are orders of magnitude higher than places that you've never heard of in the northeast of England um, and and elsewhere in, in the lesser developed parts of the UK and so on for every country. So. What I'm saying is, please beware those bearing simple solutions uh, to the housing crisis. Please beware those who say they know how to solve this crisis. Because, quite frankly, uh, the idea that somebody knows how to pull a few levers, push a few policy buttons to solve this crisis are speaking through their rear ends. And you know who I'm talking about here. This is something that.
1: I disagree, Chris. Oh, no, Brennan's going to solve it.
0: Oh, I'm sorry, Jim. Tell us how he's going to do it. I wish I could. <laughs> Why does he think he can do it? How does I, he think he can do it?
1: I, I have I have no idea, to be honest. Uh, I threw that in flippantly, but that's the narrative we're being fed at the moment. Um, the other um, interesting publication this week was the Department of Finance published what it calls its Economic Insights Series for Winter 2021. And they look at what they regard as the most relevant aspects of what's going on in the economy at the moment. And three pieces stood out that I think are interesting and give us a fair idea of the official view on what's happening in Ireland at the moment. Uh, One is obviously inflation. The November annual inflation rate hit 5.3%. The Department of Finance is suggesting that these are temporary factors, energy, global supply chain disruptions and a basic demand supply imbalance post-COVID driving prices up. So that's, I guess, non-controversial. The second piece was in relation to the labour market situation. We have seen a significant improvement in the employment and unemployment statistics here over the last 12 months as the economy has reopened. And um, there is... They still, The Department of Finance still believes that despite the increase in demand for labour, despite the decline in um, unemployment, that there is still some slack in the labour market based on the view that the unemployment rate today is still higher than it was pre-COVID. Um, they also allude to the fact that, that there are shortages in some areas of the economy and they attribute those shortages to Uh, basically the non-participation of people in certain sectors. So, and the reason for that they cite, and a lot of this is based on surveys they've carried out. One is people are concerned about health issues. So they don't want to work in certain sectors because they believe there is a health risk involved. Secondly, there are additional caring responsibilities um, that that's directly as a result of COVID disruption. Thirdly, they talk about the disincentive effects, and presumably what they are talking about there is that the ongoing existence of the pandemic unemployment payment, the PUP, um, is and has been acting as a disincentive for some people to come back into the paid labour force. And the fourth piece they talk about is a skills mismatch. So in other words, those workers who have been Um, left go in certain sectors do not have the necessary skills to get employment in the sectors that are still growing strongly. And um, they then cite a survey, which I think is interesting. They surveyed companies in different sectors about labour shortages and 80% of transport firms surveyed suggested that they are experiencing labour shortages. 70% of firms in the accommodation and food services sector, Um, 60% in the food and drink sector. Um, I guess those latter two, which are basically the hospitality industry, um, NEFID will solve that problem shortly for them by shutting them down. And 70% of construction companies are experiencing labour shortages. So... Uh, and, and indeed, this all resonates with a piece of work I'm doing at the moment. I'm doing an analysis and assessment of horticulture in Ireland. And um, I've interviewed a lot of participants in the horticulture sector over the last few days. And the one common theme I get, or thread I get from everyone, is the difficulty in recruiting and retaining labour. And they're having to pay up significantly to attract and retain workers so uh, it's 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 a significant problem and certainly one that is highlighted by the department of finance but a, a little bit like the housing demand situation this i think is also indicative of success rather than failure you know it's a sign that the economy is doing continuing to do pretty well
0: yes and i think one of the extraordinary political aspects of all of this is how um it's a glass half full half empty story the the housing crisis is certainly real the housing crisis is certainly a glass half empty story but the uh, i guess the, the politicians can't trumpet it as a, a sign of an economic success because people would just take their take them off at the knees because it would be akin to harold Macmillan's famous saying that um, sort of saw his political end which is that you've never had it so good And whilst Harold Macmillan said that many, many decades ago to the British people, and it was perfectly true statistically, of course, because there are also problems and there are always problems, uh, people reacted very badly to that. And um, it, it came at a great political cost to him. And I suspect if I was a politician saying to the Irish people, a lot of the problems that we have are real but they are problems of success. I don't think people would pay too much attention to the last part of that statement, or if they did, they would use it only as a stick to beat the politicians with strange times that we, that we live in. Mm -hmm.
1: Chris, um, I, I, we, we need to talk about COVID. Okay. Um, I've been trying to avoid it, Jim. Yeah, but we'll have to just mention it. Um, But before I do that, there's a couple of things I want to ask you about what's happening in Boris's kingdom at the moment. Uh, Obviously, we had the extraordinary by-election in Shropshire yesterday, where a safe Tory seat for almost 200 years has swung in a pretty magnificent way over to the Liberal Democrats. That's one thing. And secondly, I hear today that the Archbishop of Canterbury expressed his disappointment at the pictures and photographs that are emerging of the Tories christmas parties during lockdown yeah so, he's not the only person uh, expressing,
0: he's not the only person expressing his disappointment the um uh the the electors the voters of shropshire uh, also expressed their disappointment this is a true blue tory conservative uh seat as you say going back 200 years and it will almost certainly go back to the tories in the next general election uh, but this was a a really serious cry of protest from these people uh, about a number of things, not the first one being the parties. And if I, I'm i tempted to to write a piece about those Christmas parties, that, that photographs of which appear almost on a daily basis or on a daily basis. And there's been a development while we've been recording this podcast that I'll come on to in a minute. And, uh, But it's also the incompetence of the Johnson government. And we've rehearsed this many times ourselves. Um, I speak about it a lot with Eamon Dunphy on his podcast. Um, It it, it just goes on and on. The latest development, Jim, uh, can you get this? We know that there were Christmas parties held while Britain was in all sorts of restrictions, social distancing rules that explicitly uh, forbade. um, Indeed, they were illegal to have gatherings of the sorts that have appeared in the British press. People were being fined, students were being spot fined, £10,000 this time last year for holding parties in their halls of residence. Many, many thousands of fines were issued. It was a criminal offence to do these sorts of things. And in order to get around this, if ever you've watched, if you're old enough ever to have watched Yes Minister, you know the way that uh, governments traditionally deal with these things is by holding an inquiry in the hope that By the time the inquiry comes out, everybody's lost interest and that the inquiry will be staffed anyway by people of our sort that will reach the right conclusions. And even if they are difficult conclusions, it'll it'll happen so far in the future. Nobody will care. Well, Boris Johnson appointed what somebody called the Cabinet Secretary, a a certain um, Mr. Case, uh, a relatively young man to be in that position, head of the British Civil Service to lead an inquiry into these holdings of alleged illegal parties. Guess what? Guess who's discovered today who had or attended an allegedly illegal Christmas party on the 17th of December last year? Oh,
1: I don't believe it.
0: Mr. Simon Case, the head of the civil service. So the BBC is reporting that it understands his position as chair of the inquiry to Downing Street parties is now being reconsidered. These are all allegations. We don't want my learned friends on our case. Um, And so it goes on. And we've talked... There's a failure... There's a systemic failure of governance going on here in the UK at the moment. There's all the stuff to do with Boris Johnson, the way in which his party rules and governs. There's an absolutely fascinating article in the FT at the moment by a very good journalist called Simon Cooper. I think that's how you pronounce his name because it's spelt with a K. And the, at least I think it's by him. I may have got the journalist wrong. But anyway, there is a fascinating article about the nature of Boris Johnson's ruling party at the moment, pointing out that in the 1970s, 80s and 90s, the Conservative Party was led by Ted Heath, Margaret Thatcher and John Major. All three who were not privately educated uh, people at all. They went to state schools um, and they certainly didn't go to Eton. And with the, with the return of David Cameron in, 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 in what, about 11 years ago, uh, old, old Etonians retained their grip on Britain. And the consequences have been disastrous because of the mentality, their, their worldview, the way in which they behave, the beliefs that they hold. It's, and this article actually explored the way, one of the ways in which that happens is at Eton, um, unlike other private schools, or perhaps all schools in the UK, they're not uh, punished or discouraged for, um, when they do wrong. Um, there seems to be an ethos of the most important thing is to get away with it, and so on and so on. So you have the, the, this, this bunch of neo-gangsters running the country who are, at worst are corrupt, and at best, are incompetent. And I think, going back to our earlier discussion, that's beginning to leak into the behaviour of the Bank of England because of their bizarre decision to raise interest rates this week, and indeed the way in which they're conducting themselves. They told us they were going to raise interest rates last month, and then they didn't. Then they told us they weren't going to raise interest rates this month, and then they did, and it goes on and on. Um, this week, the rebellion in the in the House of Commons by Conservative backbenchers, there's an argument about how many of them actually did rebel because. The people who are employed to count the number of votes in in the House of Commons didn't count right. So wherever way, whichever way you look at this, Jim, from the big to the small, from the macro to the micro, uh, this, this country is uh, in trouble. And I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, I'm uh, really worried about where it does actually go next. In the context of COVID, today we've had 93,000 cases. In the UK, that's the highest ever. Omicron is definitely on the march. And just what the the critical thing now, the only thing that really matters is the proportion of those cases that end up in hospital. And that's going to be a very small number. We hope it's going to be a tiny number because if it isn't going to overwhelm the health service here in the UK, it has to be a very tiny proportion of that 93,000 today The eighty odd thousand that we had yesterday, and God knows what number we're going to get yesterday. The news from Imperial College today is that Omicron is not um, any less virulent than Delta, so that's bad news. So it does cause just as much sickness. There is still a hope that we won't get as sick as we were as we did as a population with Delta because we're more vaccinated, particularly boosted. But at the moment, that's a hope rather than a firm expectation. So this this could get horrible. I think if it doesn't, it's because we've been very, very lucky. But in terms of looping that back into both politics and economics, the economics of it is, is that COVID has caused a lot of the supply side issues that led has led to the inflation problem that we face. That's going to happen again with this new variant globally. So those problems are not going to go away. Um, and secondly, politically, Johnson is in the ultimate cleft stick. And I, of course, have no sympathy for him in this position, but he's going to be caught by the variant and the extent to which it causes hospitalizations and serious illness and the need to produce a Plan C. This week's rebellion was all about Plan B. If they didn't like Plan B, just wait till they see what potentially Plan C is going to be about. And then he is going to... Um, uh, either have to face down his backbenchers and rely again on the Labour Party to introduce new measures um, or not and sacrifice the health of the British people. But we'll see. And he may get lucky. Boris Johnson has been lucky in the past. But so it's a complete mess over here. But Jim, one of the things that I saw uh, today is the proposal from Nefft to close the pubs at five o'clock. And I must admit, I just threw my hands up in the air and said, you know, this is just um, Neffet's inner traffic warden coming out again And yes, let's have a sensible, serious discussion about measures that can protect people. But I can't see any evidence, body of evidence, that says that shutting pubs at five o'clock will make bugger-all difference to anything, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, Chris, uh, I think it's worth pointing out that we are recording this podcast Friday evening. Um, It'll probably go live Saturday morning, Okay, Um, And between recording it now and going live Saturday morning, Michael Martin will have addressed the nation once again. And um, personally, I am not going to watch it uh, because it would just turn my stomach. Um, last night, before I went to bed, I picked up the headlines about what Nefford was proposing. Uh, the obvious big one being that pubs, restaurants shut down at five o'clock from next Monday onwards. And that um, they want that to persist until january 30th um, i went to bed didn't sleep i was angry i was depressed um, and i was basically stupefied as to how in the name of god they could issue this sort of recommendation um, it doesn't to me it doesn't make any sense whatsoever uh, you know does something dramatic change at five o'clock you know why not eight o'clock? Why not nine o'clock? I have, I have no idea. Um, but it, it makes no sense to me. I find, I find it very depressing. And, um, I just as I say, this by the time this podcast goes live, uh, we will find out what advice the government is actually going to accept. Um, I hope to God it tells Neffet where to get off and that the government does what a government is meant to do, which is to govern rather than handing over the running of the country to unelected people who are members of Neft, So um, it remains to be seen, but I detect a huge level of resistance and anger and confusion about these latest recommendations from NEFET. Uh You know, there was no suggestion, for example, that if they shut the schools today, for example, that that could... Have a significant impact on um, as a circuit breaker uh, but they they have argued for months now that the schools were not a problem, uh, but yet a few weeks ago they were suggesting that school kids should wear masks and get vaccinated so if it, if it's not a, if they're not a problem, why put masks on them why vaccinate them um, I have spoken to so many parents and so many teachers over the last week or two who would tell you that the schools are absolutely it's rampant in the schools. And it's uh, the same uh, here. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think I really, really have sympathy for the hospitality sector. Uh, They're being, at least, Neffert is attempting to throw him under the bus again uh, because basically Neffert doesn't give a damn about these businesses. And if government takes on board what Neffert is recommending, it's a clear indication that government doesn't give a damn about these businesses either. So um, it remains to be seen.
0: Strong words, Jim. We should probably call it there because I suspect we could go on like this for a very long period of time. I'll just conclude by saying that that I'm not unsympathetic to the difficulties that all of these policymakers and all of these health advisors make, but the two things that, or two related things that bug me about the advice and decision-making that these people have been given has been the claim always to be following the evidence and then the flip-flopping of the advice, the inconsistency of the advice Without explaining what the evidence was that led them to one decision in the first place, and then another recommendation in the second place, and relatedly, the certainty with which every every recommendation, every policy proposal that this is that this is it, this is what makes abundant sense. Nobody in this in these organisations ever even say, "Well, we don't really know." Um, and the final thing I'd say is, what's the end game? Uh, they need to say, what the, what what what's the point of these restrictions? What are they supposed to lead to? Um, we w- eventually worked out that the first couple of lockdowns were, were to lead up to the vaccine. Well, we've done that. What's this one going to do now? Are we waiting for a, another vaccine? Are we waiting for some pills for COVID? Are we just, just doing it in the hope that something turns up? I don't know. I, I just think that there should be more clarity, more consistency, and more treating us like adults. Because I think we are being treated like idiots, quite frankly. Totally agree. Jim, speak to you next time.
1: Talk to you, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power, on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms.